Welcome to the Digital Health Insights Podcast, where NZ Hits CEO Scott Arrell brings you key thought leaders to share their experience, views, and vision on all things digital health and more. Full tech enablement is essential for creating world-class health systems, and Scott's guests discuss how this can be achieved, the challenges that need addressing, the opportunities it creates, and the benefits delivered to health, disability, and social care services in New Zealand and worldwide. Kia ora, katoa. Welcome to Digital Health Insights, and I'm Scott Errol. Thanks for joining me today. I hope your day, your week, your month, gone well. Um, here we are now, sort of slip sliding into Christmas, or just about Christmas in the new year. I'm looking forward to 2021, certainly hoping for a much better year than the one we've been experiencing in 2022. Anyway, I'm not going to hold you up because our guest speaker today, Marshall Cooper, uh, we've known each other, Marshall and I, for quite some time, and I re- regard each other as friends. and Marshall's fantastic. He's been working in the whole area of digital health innovation, startups, entrepreneurship for uh, quite a long time. He's got really big experience in that whole space and has got a real passion for mental health and addiction and what he can do to help in that area. And as you know, that's a, it's unfortunately a whole growing part of the health and well-being sector uh, in New Zealand and I'm sure uh, globally as well. He's developed a tool e-mental health tool called Lofty, L-O-F-F-T-Y, and he's rolling that out across the country and looking to overseas as well. So he's going to tell you all about that. Uh, You're going to enjoy this interview, I'm sure, and uh, please share it around. One thing I do ask of you is subscribe, leave a message if you like, and uh, but also share the this episode because, as you know, I always say, got to share the love around. So uh, let's just go have a chat to Marshall. Hey, hi there, Marshall. Thanks for joining us today. And this is a great day. Both you and I live on the North Shore of Auckland in, uh, in fantastic New Zealand. And, uh, you know, we were just saying, weren't we? It's just the sun's out, the birds are chirping. Uh, I've got twoies outside my door singing away. Um, couldn't be better, could it? So how are you doing anyway? Oh, fantastic. And, and look, we are very lucky to be in New Zealand at this time. So um, look, I uh, really appreciate you having me on here. Scott, and looking forward to it, and, and uh, blessed to be in a in a place that's COVID-free, essentially, and and uh, that we can, um, you know, have these conversations like we are. Yes, yeah, that's great, isn't it? And uh, you know, I, I show off to our international um, our listeners, to be frank, and which you know I shouldn't do because we, you know, it's tough times in, in lots of parts of the world, isn't it? Mm. But uh, you know, there is no doubt at times like these that New Zealand is God's own country, and yeah. you know, we, we yeah, as proud Kiwis, we hold that up, don't we? <laughs> we do, we do. That's <laughs> I usually keep that quite quiet. You know, we we should keep it secret normally. Um, but not many people can get to New Zealand at the moment, so we're, we're you know we're safe from a big onslaught of, of people just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Let's talk about you though, Marshall. You you know you and I have known each other for quite some time, and um, but a little bit about your background and you know um, where you've been and what's got you to where you are now. Yeah, look, um, it's, it's been an interesting journey. I'm getting closer to that magical fifty. Um, but uh, I started off my career as a diplomat, actually. So I did economics and finance at university and uh, went to Wellington and joined foreign affairs and spent three years as a trade diplomat in Geneva, which was fantastic, um, but couldn't, uh, wasn't quite ready after the dot-com crash to come back to New Zealand. So we went to the UK and, uh, and spent some time doing private banking and venture capital, and that's really where I caught the, the startup bug. And... Uh, by the startup bag, I was, I was involved with a whole bunch of, um, I guess a lot of them were mobile technology companies at the time. Um, but eventually we returned down under, not quite back to New Zealand. We went back to Australia. And I uh, got involved with a, a, an early stage business in the mental health space um, that was set up by a, originally by a, a Kiwi GP and uh, fell in love with the business and what it was all about and uh, spent the next uh, year and a bit raising some capital for the business. Um, but the draw of grandparents, and I had two young kids that were born in Aussies, the Kiwi kids, we call them our quasis. Um, <laughs> they, uh, yeah, we, we, they weren't seeing their grandparents enough, so about once a year for a week or so. So we came back, the draw of New Zealand, as we've just been talking about, was too strong and ended up coming back to New Zealand um, and have never regretted that, obviously. Uh, but it's the sort of business that we could run from here, and so it's been operating in Australia for about 12 years. This business, and and 
then um, yeah, basically have kept it running for New Zealand. So um, that's I guess a little bit of my background. I, I, I've uh, always been a passionate entrepreneur, um, but I guess in, in my my latter years, I've I've felt if you can be an entrepreneur, then why not be an entrepreneur doing something that is going to have an impact as well. So I sort of mm, uh, mm. I, I call myself an impact entrepreneur. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, actually. And the uh, it, there's no better place to do it than a health. You know, if you if you have that passion and that pull towards you know making a difference, then you know doing it and doing it in health is it's so it's you know we'll probably talk about this a bit so frustrating, but at the same same time can be so rewarding, can't it? You're, you're absolutely right. I was about to jump in there, but you just said it. It's um, it is rewarding. Um, but boy, it's of all the sectors, I guess health and education are the two that are the last bastions of, of technology trying to make a difference in those sectors, and and um, and that's just the nature of the sector being quite conservative and and protective. So it's it's just, yeah, it's very challenging, very challenging. But most definitely, mm-hmm. um, if there is a sector where you can make a difference, for me, it's health. Mm-hmm. And you've got um, quite an interest in sport as well. You know, if, I, if you don't mind me mentioning that, you and I, um, for listeners' sake, yeah, we we were colleagues on the Harbour Sport mm-hmm. trustees there for a while. Uh, Harbour Sport is a regional sporting trust, as we call them in New Zealand, that have as uh, promotes and and uh, uh, what's the word gets people involved in local activity and sport and rec- recreation, doesn't it? And then um, I think you were, were or still are involved with baseball. In New Zealand, yeah, I was on the board of so after Harbour Sport, I was on the board of Baseball New Zealand for just over two years. At the time when we established uh, the Tuatara, which is the mm. uh, professional team in the ABL, unfortunately they're not playing this year because of COVID. But um, I got involved with that, and so while I'm no longer on the board, I I'm madly passionate about that sport. In fact, all sports. But I I grew up in in the Netherlands for five years, so I I played baseball at an American school there, international school, and really just love that sport in terms of what it um, what it does in terms of uh, teaching kids around sportsmanship and teams team skills and and it's a very community focused sport so really mm. exciting to see that that growing in New Zealand and, and loving being a part of that community yeah it is a great sport uh, my grandson played it there I think you know for a couple of years he's um, the school sort of over overtook things school and basketball mm-hmm. to, to overtook things this year uh, but he really enjoyed it and we enjoyed going along to watch and there was yeah very different uh, and very special kind of uh, collegiality I suppose and support for you know, young fellas and young girls playing playing um, baseball because they you know they they don't you don't have male and female teams they're all mixed in together and they they just you know it's, it's fantastic the way they all just get on and get in and get stuck in good skill sets good yeah you know, absolutely for, for young ones yeah look it, it yeah. is a great sport and, and the thing about baseball is you can also be any sort of body type um you can have you know huge mm. shoulders and and be a big big person or you can actually be quite small the tuatara had a a really really quite quite short japanese pitcher this year but boy he could throw a ball he had a pitcher, <laughs> pitcher. and um yeah. and so you know it, it does open opportunities for kids we've got about 46 young New Zealanders playing baseball around the world in different places and mm. various colleges. And we'll soon have a, I think in the next five years, we'll have a, a Stephen Adams of, of uh, baseball out of New Zealand, which will be great for the sport. Um, but mm. particularly for, um, uh, you know, I think it, New Zealand's one of the few countries where softball and baseball are separated, uh, where, you know, basically you play one or the other, whether you're a male or a female. But around the world, it tends to be that guys play baseball and women play softball. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting dynamic. And there's a lot of uh, – now there are a number of uh, softball clubs in New Zealand that are converting to being what they call diamond sports clubs. So you have you do both. And generally, mm-hmm. girls will play baseball, in, but when they hit about 13, they'll, they'll move across to softball because that's where the opportunities are for them. Oh, that's great. Yeah, as a young fellow, that was a fair while ago. I used to play softball. That was pretty popular in schools and yeah, so forth. Right back then. I, I was always one of that that little short gobby fellow. So I, I was and uh, and uh, so I was always the the catcher, of course. You know, oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, and I used to love the yeah. You know, even back then, mate. You know, the, the the sledging the batters was just. I probably got more fun out of that than anything else, frankly. <laughs> oh yeah. Anyway, I'm amazed. Yeah, we, the catchers, right. yeah, but, yeah. I didn't know you were a catcher. That's great. 
Yeah, well, I don't know how good I was. I just, uh, I think I was just the loudest and talk and most talkative, so they put me there. Uh, <laughs> I, anyway, look, I, now as my listeners know, uh, my audience knows that uh, if you get me on to sport, we're not going to talk about anything else. So we'll get off that right now. Well, okay. at least for now, for now, we uh, um, there's another thing that we play pretty well in New Zealand called rugby, but we might talk about that later. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about loft, lofty. You're, mm-hmm. you're, now, just for listeners, this is um, you spell it L O double F. T-Y, yes, we do. and uh, an ounce of Lofty, and, you know, you've recently launched that, but that's been something that's that you've been building for quite some time, isn't it? It's been, yeah, it it's been a, 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 a labour of love. Most definitely. They say persistence is one of the qualities you need to have as an entrepreneur, and, and we've certainly got that in the team at Lofty. Um, we uh, we started off as an Australian business. It's um, uh, now actually a New Zealand registered business, and so um, most of our sales etc are in australia um, with practitioners gps and psychologists and psychiatrists using our software there um but you're right we have recently launched it in new zealand about uh, in mental health awareness week in september and really excited by where it's heading so um yes yeah, it's it's, uh, it's certainly been a labor of love we've we've got a lot of experience in the sector we know we know what our vision is and and the impact we're going to have um, but it is challenging, as we were talking about before, to get the um, to get the sort of the complete buy-in of everyone. Um, but we'll get there. We're, we're certainly making some great progress with both the the clinical people we're speaking with, as well as the the actual end users who are the the people. Right. Yeah. And this is this something that you know, as an end user, so uh, I I've got let's say depression. Um, you know. Now, forgive me because I'm a, I'm not a, an expert in that field like you are. But you know, say I've got depression, I can go online. I can you know download download Lofty and start using it straight away. Or do I have to go through a GP or a doctor? Yeah, great. So so I, just to explain what it is, um, we have the world's most comprehensive multi-disorder mental health assessment technology, and so it is effectively a very intelligent, smart. Uh, questionnaire or assessment that someone does in their own time and when they've completed it it takes them about 15 to 30 minutes Um, when they've completed it their practitioner that they've nominated who can be a GP or a psychologist or a psychiatrist uh, they will uh, be able to access the results and the person follows up with them in in a normal standard consultation and uh, reviews it with their practitioner so what it's really doing is it's collecting a lot of information from the patient in the patient's time that that GP wouldn't normally have to be able to do that. Um, And then it provides that GP with really detailed information from which they can then make far better um, referral decisions or treatment decisions. Um, So for for the practitioner, it is something that enables them to uh, get far better patient outcomes, uh, to improve their patient flow through their practice, uh, and, and I'll just tell a bit of give a bit of background on that and, and why I explain that is that um, in a, G, a GP certainly in New Zealand it's it's very similar in other countries anywhere between six and fifteen minutes for a consultation and uh, that's you know hardly enough for a lot of physical health consultations yet alone for mental health when mm. practitioner really needs to ask a whole bunch of questions and drill down to what the issues may be so that they can make some good decisions. Um, unfortunately, people might only raise that they've got anxiety or they're feeling anxious or feeling depressed or down in some way, you know, eight minutes into a 10-minute consult. And the doctor really has a choice to ask a couple of questions quickly and, and get them out the door or spend more time with them. But if they spend more time with them, then they're eating into the time of the next patient. And they could be three mm-hmm. patients behind already at, at you know, 10 o'clock. Um, so practitioners are under immense pressure. They're really, really under huge time pressure. In fact, their most scarce resource is time. Um, and they've got so many people to see. So anything that we can do to help them to collect that information very quickly and that they can then glance at this report, you know, 30 seconds a minute before their, their patient comes to see them, um, and it gives them the ability to go, ah, here are the issues here. I'll ask a couple more questions bang, straight into it and making some good diagnoses. Um, anything we can do to help the GP in that regard is um, is invaluable. Um, mm. So that's what it's all about. It's about getting the right data to the, the doctor at the right time. 
Right. And, and so in terms of kind of confidence in using it, so, you know, there's, and you've heard the term app for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, um, I guess globally, actually, the world has been swamped by apps for everything. And, yeah. uh, you know, so then, you know, someone's looking online or in the um, app shop and they see Lofty, you know, they, you know, what gives them the confidence that using Lofty has that, that, I guess, the, the secret source that I'm hearing you talk about is that clinical efficacy in the background and also linked to, you know, someone clinically qualified and able, you know, to do an, you know, to do an assessment or to follow up. Yeah, yeah. Is that the, is that where you see the a key difference? Yeah, that, absolutely. So the first thing to note is that uh, Lofty is not an app, so we're not actually available on Google Store or on the Apple iStore. Um, in fact, that was very intentional because you know the mental health conversation in the last few years has really ramped up, and uh, yeah. there's a lot of apps coming out. In fact, um, there are over forty thousand mental health and wellbeing apps available at the moment. And, uh, and obviously some are doing a great job and some are very, very average. But we wanted to really differentiate ourselves and make sure that people understood that we aren't just an app that someone can go and use and then, and then very quickly, you know, see the results and potentially panic when they see the results. We wanted people to go back and see, see a, a professional um, and then get the right advice from that professional. So the second point to make on that is um, we also – and not a diagnostic tool. And that's really important to understand. We are a decision support tool and a data collection tool. So we are, ask questions and the patient, the person, the user, they answer them. And so the report that goes to the, the practitioner is not a diagnosis. Um, mm. they, they, um, they get this information, they ingest the information, and then they make the professional diagnosis or not. They may choose not to make a diagnosis based on, on what they've they've read. Um, so it's really important to realize that we're not a diagnostic tool. We're a data collection tool that a practitioner then uses. But certainly the questions we ask are based on um, what's called the, the DSM and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, we've uh, kept up to the, So we're up to the date with the, the, the DSM-5. Um, but even the world's moving away a little bit from that DSM model of um, diagnosing and labeling people with certain conditions based on symptoms. And they're moving towards a far more contextual model um, where there's a whole range of other factors that are contributing to how someone's feeling and being. So things like their home environment, their relationships, how much sleep they're getting, how much exercise they're getting, what's their social situation are they um are they a parent um are they what's their marital status all those sorts of other contributing factors um are really important for people's mental health and well-being so mm-hmm. so for us um we're we're asking the clinical questions um but with a view to also supplementing that with other questions in the future mm, yeah and that, that, that is yeah, that whole level of detail that you've built into it on purpose uh, does differentiate. And as you say, it's not an app anyway, um, which, yeah, as you say, this what was the number? 42,000, 40,000? 40,000, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the e-mental health space, isn't it? Yeah, and most of those, most of those are awareness-raising apps, or they may be mm. apps that um, ask a few questions, and then from those questions it might suggest you you know, go for a walk or, you know, get up to your 10,000 steps or, um, you know, get more sleep or, so there's a whole bunch of really important mm. things to do. And that's the very early, early prevention stage. So we're about prevention, but we're about preventing people from having their, their issues become more acute. So in, in life, we all have, we have life events. We have job mm. losses, marital breakdowns, people in our family passing away or friends. And um, everyone deals with those things very differently. Um, some people, they just get through those life events, no problems. Others will need support and they're less resilient and, and they, they might turn to um, drugs and alcohol as, as their support. Unfortunately, when you do that, then things can take a turn and, and you could lose your job because of a you know, drink driving charge or, or worse, you might hurt someone. And so what we're about is making sure that when people are struggling, that they can get um, the right uh, advice on what steps they can take uh, based on 
answering some clinical questions. And um, where we differentiate ourselves from other decision support tools um, is that we're comprehensive. Um, so historically, there's been a lot of questionnaires, mental health questionnaires. Um, most of them started in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There haven't been many new ones that have popped up in the last 20 years. Um, but the real differentiating factor is that most of them have just, they, they ask questions around one, two, maybe three, if you're lucky, four different mental health issues. And so we, we refer to them as sort of single disorder assessment tools. Um, and, and for us, that's just not good enough because if you were, if you were a doctor and you, someone came in and didn't quite know, um, you know, they were, they were feeling well and the doctor said, look, I'm going to send you off some blood tests. Um, they don't send you off to get your blood drawn and then run one test. They'll run a dozen tests or more. Um, and if someone then, you know, six months later got leukemia uh, and the doctor said, oh, sorry, I didn't test for that or whatever the condition might be, um, you know, they'd get in a bit of trouble. But it seems, unfortunately, that it's acceptable to do a depression assessment with someone, you know, a single disorder assessment, uh, and then leave it at that. And, and we cover 30 different mental health conditions. Um, very rarely do you have just one mental health condition on its own. Um, so when, when a, a practitioner in their time-pressed environment realises that the most pre uh, prevalent mental health issues are depression or anxiety, that's what they ask. Um, and, and if that's what they're asking, that's what they're finding out. And that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that everyone's, you know, the vast majority of people with mental health issues, it's depression or anxiety. So it doesn't then give the doctor enough insight to then go, ah, okay, you've got depression, but you've also got some um, you know, moderate drinking issues, or you've got um, PTSD, or you've got some other challenges that are contributing to the depression. So even though I might have got it right and assessed you as having depression, um, if you're not asking the other questions about the other conditions, then uh, you're, you're really going to struggle to, to help that person because you're only mm -hmm. trying to resolve their depression and not the underlying causes of it. So, yeah, we're all about multi-disorder assessment, about really getting that, that deeper information level, uh, level of information to the practitioner, um, and then they can, they can ask more questions themselves if they want. Mm, yeah, great. And uh, you're a member of NZ Health IT or NZ HIT, of course, and, and as part of that, you're, you're also a member of the e-mental health industry group that we've got going, the, the special interest group that um, brings members together with you know, who are operating in the e-mental health and addiction space. So, you know, you, and what I noticed, and it's a fairly new group, that one, uh, but the collegiality, I suppose, the, the the willingness to get come together and talk about the issues and, and then work on, you know, contributing, engaging and putting uh, input back into the sector, that's, that's pretty um, damn strong, if I can put it that way, to be frank. frank. But, uh, you know, and I think that's a reflection of the whole sector, isn't it? The, the mental health and addiction sector. It's it's got its special um, complexities, but it's also got people who kind of understand those and are willing to work together to to resolve them, even if, uh, in some ways, they might be competitors with each other as well. Yeah, and and so we actually don't see ourselves as, ha as having any competitors in New Zealand. Um, there's certainly been a proliferation of new technologies, new apps, um, to use that term. Um, in the last few years in New Zealand, but also globally. Um, one thing that is is very clear is that um, this is a huge problem. It really mm. is a huge problem. And, and frankly, there could be 10 of us and there wouldn't be, you know, 10 lofties and they probably wouldn't, would only be scratching the surface of, of the, um, you know, the, the help that's required in, you know, in New Zealand. We've unfortunately got uh, the highest teenage suicide rate in the world, um, not something to be proud of at all. Um, but what we also know is that if we just continue to do more of the same, uh, that's not going to change. So one of the things mm -hmm. that you've talked about a lot, uh, Scott, is this, this um, uh, the human sort of capital um, par paradox. Is that the, the term you use? Uh, oh, the, the, the headcount paradigm. The, the headcount <laughs> paradigm, yeah. So you know, it is, this is a sector that unfortunately very typically – the, the perceived solution to it and the problems in it is to just throw more money at more people. Uh, now, it takes six years uh, to train a clinical psychologist plus another couple to have them go through their their uh, supervised counselling. Um, 
it takes a and, and in New Zealand we only train I think it's about six year a year uh, and so you've got people retiring at their end, end of their careers uh, you've got a GP population that's aging rapidly in this country and Australia um, and, and also globally and so you've really got a situation where you, you know there's going to be a massive lag if you start trying to train people up in the space and it's not to say we shouldn't and and we should actually be significantly increasing the number of practitioners in the space whether they're GPs, psychologists, um, counsellors, psychiatrists, the works. Um, but it's just not going to It's not gonna be done quick enough. So there's going to be a lot of people hurting um, who, who potentially could suicide before we can do that. Uh, we actually have to start using technology, um, particularly in a sector which competes with physical health. I mean, that's really the bigger competitor of anyone in the, in the mental health space is that we're actually – competing for time and resources often from governments to focus more money on mental health than they do. Um, but then money then needs to be applied correctly, not just hmm. more brochures printed and awareness campaigns done. Um, that'll only go so far. Uh, we actually need to start being innovative and really looking at technology as a way to uh, take some of the pressure off practitioners um, to assist them. So, absolutely not replacing them there's no i just don't see a time when that would ever happen um but for me it's about providing solutions that will make practitioners more able to help more people in a certain time frame yeah absolutely and for listeners who haven't heard it i, I think many of them would have heard me bang on about the headcount paradigm before marshall but yeah for those that haven't it's it's really the uh, the situation of the problem in the health being described as more people needing more care. And for the last 10 years, it's been more people needing even more care. Uh, so yeah, when we start comorbidities and so forth, um, then, and that's, that is the problem. There's, you know, there's, I don't think there's too much dispute about that. Um, however, the solution that we keep coming up with and has been for 20 years is more people to provide more care. So again, uh, the headcount, is part of the problem and a headcount is seen as the solution. And I think 10 years ago, we, we reached a tipping point where that solution no longer held true. And since then, you know, because we just don't have enough people. And as you say, no matter how hard we try now to train people up in whatever field mm. in health and disability and mental health, um, we're way behind the eight ball. And so we're, and I've had some clinicians in, in, in that sector say to me, oh, Scott, you're just talking about technology and robots replacing us all. And I say, well, no, no. Um, if that's what you're hearing from me, then I'm, I'm not describing it properly because there aren't enough of you and you do a fan, such a fantastic job that you've got to be enabled and supported with technology. And and that's the that, that's where people like yourself are coming into play now. Yeah. Um, because if we carry on using that old solution for the problem, well, gosh, you know, you imagine where we're going to be in 10 years' time. We just, you know, it, it's bad enough as it is. So it's not hard to imagine um, how things will go if we don't uh, really ramp up the, the digital and technology uh, solutions to support uh, people to do what they do. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you an example, Scott. So in, um, in New Zealand, unfortunately, at the moment, uh, you can generally see a psychologist reasonably quickly if you're paying privately. Um, but if you're being referred via your GP uh, and you're going through the public system, which is actually the vast majority of people, you can easily wait between three to four months to get your appointment. Um, now, a lot, can, a lot of negative stuff can happen in that time if you're not getting the support um, that you require. Um, but so it's really important that we start using technology to enable those practitioners to see more people more effectively. So one of the, I'll give you a story about uh, one of the uh, early psychologists that started using uh, Lofty in, in New Zealand. Um, she um, had a, a patient who uh, she had been seeing for about nine months and she had uh, really over the last few consultations with him realized that uh, he just wasn't sharing something. She just couldn't get something out of him. There was some, something he was holding back on. Uh, as it turns out, she said, look, I think you should have a go using the Lofty uh, assessment technology. And, uh, and and so he did. And lo and behold, um, 
and there's a lot of research that backs this up, that um, people are far more open and honest to a computer than they are to a person face-to-face. And that can be a whole range of reasons. It could be just a innocent bit of body language that the psychologist, you know, with the, with the patient there, the client there, you know, an eyebrow might raise or they might just change their across their legs and, and the patient clamps up because they think, oh, oh, no, I shouldn't have said that. Or So they're far more open and honest when they answer questions to a computer. So anyway, this particular patient, he was using the lofty assessment tool and the next consultation she had with him, she saw on the report um, that he had um, some gay uh, gay sort of porn addiction. Uh, sorry, actually, he just said you know, sexual uh, addiction. She got mm-hmm. uh, talking mm-hmm. about porn addiction, then it's gay porn addiction. And all of a sudden, because he had opened up on that and he was highly embarrassed and she's a female practitioner, um, he opened up on that and all of a sudden um, the barriers were down. And he just told her this and told her that. And, and before you know it, everything that she was knew she, he was holding back on, um, all of a sudden he was sharing. And so they have had a number of consultations since where it's just breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough because the client psychologist relationship is now just so full of trust um and that that so so much stronger than it would have been where they were sort of for the first few consultations sort of testing each other out um so one of the the feedback things the feedback we get from psychologists is that they believe that lofty asks the questions that they would normally ask over the first two consultations okay so Mm -hmm. there's two hours worth of questioning that they're getting right away so they're effectively jumping straight into that third consultation so if you're a psychologist with a massive backlog of patients and you can just jump straight into the third consult and avoid asking all those questions that not only are you sick of asking it because you have to ask that of all your new customers your new clients but frankly the patients are sick of answering because they've answered them you know many times to different people over the years and they just want to have that when they see the new psychologist they want to have that um, that information in their hands straight away so mm, mm. It's, it's, you know, our GPs and psychologists and psychiatrists, they all use Lofty in a slightly different way. But the psychologists, the feedback from them is that it really saves them time, enables them to jump straight into that third consultation and actually start making a difference sooner. Yeah, oh, well, that's great. Yeah, and that, that speeds up that that process, so to speak. And uh, if, that, if that helps people um, in a more timely way, then that's fantastic. And and I'm sure it does. Uh, I can remember, and this could be a little bit controversial statement, but, you know, I've been around in, in the sector, as you know, for quite some time, and a lot of that in care delivery. And uh, it must be about 15 years ago, I was in a, a, a meeting, a discussion with health practitioners and policymakers and mm-hmm. so forth, talking about diabetes, you know, because we, we tend to have, I don't know whether this is a global thing, but in New Zealand, I've noticed because I've been around too long, probably, you know, sort of a 20 year cycle. So, we, you know, sort of um, at, at day one, 20 years ago, someone says um, we're going to have a problem with diabetes, uh, for example. And, you know, and before that, about 25 years before that, uh, or even 30 years, it was uh, cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes about 20 years from the point of day one when someone makes that comment, you know, figuratively, um, for a, a, a sort of a, a levelling out to occur. Um, and anyway, we were in this discussion about 15 years ago and, you know, there was a discussion about diabetes and some policymakers and so forth, um, you know, who are linked, you know, quite closely linked to politicians and those that make decisions, you know, say, oh, well, we're going to undertake a consultation process. And that's probably going to take, we really want to do a deep dive and all of those great words, you know, and, and it was, it's probably going to take us two years, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and the rest of us around the table were sort of, show, you know, going, "Oh my goodness!" And and a, a surgeon actually, who's a, a diabetes specialist and surgeon, spoke up at this meeting, and, and he said, "Well, two years. Um, how many limbs do you think I'm going to remove due to diabetes in that time?" Mm, mm. And that, that brought the whole room to us to a, to a silence. You know, it was like, and he said, two years. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of toes, feet, yeah, legs." fingers, hands, arms, you know, that I'm, I'm cutting off. And he said, and, and it's not acceptable. And, uh, but you know what? The two years consultation still happened. And, and here we are, 50, you know, it's, we're getting close to the 20 year period and diabetes, you know, we, we, you know, we still talk about it as a big problem, which it is. So um, I hope that we learn from those things and mental health and addiction is a space where we can't afford you know, to hold back. We've got to make a difference and we've got uh, to do it. Music it really to my ears, Scott, music to my ears. I mean, Dave Vitelli, who's uh, for your overseas listeners, is a 
uh, a New Zealand campaigner for mm. uh, health and well-being, and and he's doing some amazing things in in New Zealand, South Auckland in particular, where he's getting very very large obese people um, off the couch and and completely changing their lives. Well, you know, he posted something the other day on on LinkedIn about yet another study. There was another diabetes study that someone did, an academic didn't. And, and you know, frankly, if we poured the money in to diabetes or mental health uh, into actual services, but as I pointed out before, not just more of the same services, but technology um, and innovation, uh, if we poured that money into that approach rather than just more studies where we know the outcome of the study already, um, uh, it would be a very different place. So, I mean, that, that's my challenge to the, the health sector in New Zealand. Uh, I think, see, one thing with Lofty is that we're collecting incredibly rich data. Um, we, we ask a lot of questions around uh, a lot of issues that enables us when we know, you know, the gender and the ethnicity and the, the location um, the um, all this other demographic data about people that that data becomes really really helpful from a research perspective um, and so doing a study a, a traditional academic study where you interview 100 people and it takes you six months to a year to do so and then another six months to write it and then another three months to get peer-reviewed and then it gets published in a journal that 50 people might read um, and that's all cost you a couple of hundred thousand dollars of government money um, that's that's the old way. The, the new way to do research is with real-time live data. You know, with Lofty, when we've got thousands and thousands of users, we've got millions of data points that can then be used on an aggregated, de-identified basis to to help with government policy making, to help with yep. um, mm-hmm. decision making around where resources should be spent. Uh, and so that's the future: is 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 not only using technology at the individual level where uh, you know the, the you know you're getting better patient outcomes at the individual level but also at the, mm. the public health level where that data can be used again on a completely deodified mm. basis to to work out where in the country where in uh, you know are the problems is it yeah. and I think we're seeing we're actually seeing that as a good point you know the research has shifted I think uh, even more quickly than the health system itself because they, you know, if we're talking research out of universities or um, institutions such as that, yeah, the, the use of data has become almost obligatory, isn't it? And yeah. then, it, you know, it's obviously safe data in terms of its security and privacy, but, you know, the, you know we're seeing that, which, and I totally, so I totally agree with you. Hey, just to sort of finish up, um, also talking language. So in New Zealand, again, for our international listeners, but possibly also for our New, some of our New Zealand listeners, Marshall, we, you know, we've got three official languages. So there's uh, English, Maori, and English, uh, sorry, New Zealand Sign Language. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it's going to be pretty hard with your system to build in sign language, but, you know, you, you've clearly got it in English. Are you, is it in a te reo Maori or you're moving towards that at some point? Yeah, no doubt. Um, so we we definitely do plan to have it in te reo reasonably quickly. Um, that's sort of just a function of, of funding, and, and we are a part of the uh, Ministry of Health is currently pulling together an e-mental health framework um, mm. to ensure that mental health apps uh, are both secure and, and robust and, and catered to um, all groups, whether that be different ethnicities, different languages, different um, disabilities, um, that sort of thing. So we are in the process as a, as a business to make sure that we cater for as, to as many people as we possibly can. Um, at the same time, as a startup, we also have to prioritise and get the, get the usage of the tool up so that we can get the revenue to therefore um, do more of those things. So for us, it's a, a balancing act. Um, we absolutely are committed to making uh, lofty available to as many people well to everyone frankly um and so part of the barriers to entry for some people to use it is is the cost um so we are in discussions with a number of um, phos uh, again for your overseas listeners the primary healthcare organizations um around making it available for people who might be a bit more marginalized who can't afford it that sort of thing so there's a lot on a lot on the go um we um, but, but it's really important that we we do cater for for all types, and, it, and I guess as a as a solution at the moment that um, is a digital solution. If you're if you're 
hard of hearing, you wouldn't need the, the sign language because you, you can read it um, in that sense. But, yeah, we're certainly, um, certainly focused on making it available to everyone we can. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know that's clearly the trend, and uh, as you say, the framework that's being developed by well by the Ministry of Health, but in conjunction with with a whole heap of us, frankly, is um, it's an important piece of work, and hopefully, you know that that will you know, again, it's uh, I'll share this. As a, you know, I just hope that it doesn't take too long. I think it's a, you know um, in that case, you know. Uh, perfect is going to be the enemy of good and it would be much better to get something in place and then then build on it than you know try to get it exactly right before before it comes into place you know yeah and, and you're absolutely right on that i mean the other thing is you can't make you can't make a uh, i guess a certification system a framework like that so hard to for, for early stage businesses to meet the perfect ideal solution uh, criteria for because if you do that, it'll just make it too hard for anyone to even start up in the space and you'll kill any innovation. Um, mm. Similarly, you know, uh, in going through the process, a number of people commented that in the, going through the process of, of working mm. on what the framework might look like, I should say, um, but a number of people commented that we could certify and register all these New Zealand apps, but, you know, the, the internet is a global thing. So people will just go offshore and use other apps too. Um, so they're getting certified and, and most of the, the big, big ones are, possibly unlikely to go through that process because New Zealand is such a small population. So mm-hmm. balancing act, we certainly want to make sure that um, users, practitioners and funders all see that Lofty is a, um, a solution that is going to make an impact, that um, is safe to use, is uh, a solution that practitioners are comfortable to refer to their patients. So I didn't mention before, but when you ask how it works, well, yes, people can go online and find Lofty and, and uh, nominate their practitioner, but we also have practitioners that then use it regularly and they just they recommend it to their patients. Um, so, um, yeah, we want to make sure that they fully trust what it's all about and and um, that's something we've got to, as an early-stage business. We just continually um, are getting the word out there that this is what we're about and, and how we're making a difference through you know this multi-disorder approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, and then let's just finish up with uh, what I always do on my show is uh, that old time machine thing. So we, mm-hmm. you know, and I have to condition you that that when you get in it, it's nothing like the TARDIS, right? If you're a Doctor <laughs> Who fan, it's, there's no leather seats or anything like that. Uh, so, uh, anyway, um, I'll give you the keys to the time machine. We'll hit that 2030 button and you get out in, in 10 years' time. And what does good look to, like to you? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a great question that I – I, I really hope that you know we we avoid some of the things you were talking about before, which is just review after review after review. We've had plenty of those in New Zealand and in the mental health space recently. We've just had a, a big nationwide review, um, and it's it's important to do that. But we seem to do that every ten to fifteen twenty years, and uh, and and the results are never surprising. So for me, uh, what I'd like to see in, in ten years' time in twenty thirty is a completely and utterly uh, con- customer-driven or consumer-driven uh, solution in Lofty that enables um, anyone to literally get on their computer, get on their phone, um, get on their earpiece uh, or their watch and basically uh, have the ability to be ans- asked a whole bunch of questions that immediately points them to a whole range of solutions where their GP, their psychologist, psychiatrist might just be one of those solutions. You know, that mm. it's that face-to-face is just one solution. There'll be a whole range of other solutions available to them um, at their choice. So they completely and utterly drive the process. And in doing that, what we, we end up doing is further destigmatizing the whole space because then the consumer's in control. Uh, and, and so if their issues are, are more acute and more challenging, then our recommendation engine points people to uh, the more professional help. Um, if their issues are very, very early stage and there's a lot of things that they can do themselves uh, to help themselves, then we point them to those solutions. And so uh, that's for me, is, is the ideal where it just becomes so ubiquitous for anyone to go, you know what, check out Lofty, uh, it'll help you. And it just becomes a no-brainer for them and, and, and really intuitive and, and easy and, and frankly fun to use mm-hmm. yeah great and you know from my perspective my little penny's worth would be i you know i'd dearly love that in t- at 
10 years' time, uh, we have a zero suicide rate in New Zealand. Yeah, look, I, um, yeah, that's a fantastic. We've had a bit of a big debate in New Zealand about whether there should be a target or whether there should be a zero suicide rate. I, I fall on the side of ha- having a zero suicide rate. Um, our, our website, uh, we talk about looking to halve the suicide rate uh, by 2025. I, I genuinely believe that's possible but only if we adopt innovative new technologies. If we do more of the same, never going to happen. Um, And that target of a 50% reduction is just a target for 2025. Our ultimate goal is a a zero suicide rate. A lot of people argue, oh, that's never possible and, and, you know, there's a natural level of suicide. Well, that's crap, frankly. I think um, if we we believe that, then what's the point in trying? I think, you know, I'm a business person at heart uh, and I – I've always known that if you set targets, um, you're more likely to achieve them. And if you don't set a target, you won't. So let's set a damn target uh, and then hit that target. So that's our 50% reduction by 2025. And then set another one, another 50% reduction. And then maybe after that, you, you set it down to zero. But uh, yeah, that's- zero straight away, I think, is a, a struggle. But I am all for a zero suicide rate. Yeah. To me, it's all about ambition, and I, you know, we should all be ambitious, ambitious for having nobody taking their own lives. Um, you know, and and yes, you know, it's it, that is probably not likely ever to be zero. Uh, but with, without actually aiming for that and not being ambitious about it, then then um, yeah, and there's that. I don't know whether I'm, I'm going to stuff this uh, this quote up, but basically, when you have no target, then you will always achieve it. Yeah, yeah. no, I think you got that quite on the that quite on the head that one. Um, Look, I, I, yeah, for, for me, you've got to have a target. And uh, it, it's, again, a, a bit of a, a no-brainer, really. Um, with me, if yeah, there's we, a lot of discussion. I think there's a global discussion about that sort of area. And, um, yeah, and, it, and targets do scare some people because it does it does um, effectively, you know, put some, a stake in the ground. At, and mm-hmm. um, some people don't like that. And, and that, I understand that as well because in this space it can actually put more pressure on people that, you know that that shouldn't be in place but you know ultimately you know we started off talking about what a fantastic place new zealand is um you know wouldn't it be fantastic to be able to say well we have zero and and even if we don't achieve it at least we've done our darndest to to get there and you know it's sort of a uh, that's where we are hey and um we're just about to finish and you know what this is probably one of the first where we've got right through uh, without talking about rugby and uh, <laughs> Because we we started talking and at the start they're talking about baseball. I thought, well, we better I better not um, get my listeners um, yeah raising their eyebrows and rolling their eyes. And here goes Scott again. Uh, but of course, as we are recording this, we've just had the weekend of a massive historical occasion where mm. uh, the Argentinian uh, Pumas, as they're known, uh, beat our All Blacks, uh, which is the first time ever for them. Um, you now, gosh, you know, for you know, for a lot of us Kiwis. Uh, you know, we could get depressed about that, but on the other hand, um, what a fantastic effort by the Argentinians! Well, that was, you know, that really was, you know, uh, they lifted their game, and they, they tell you what, I bet you they had a target, they had a goal to beat the All Blacks. That's been around for a long time because when you looked at their faces and and they were crying and yeah, they were so yeah. happy about it, you know, they they you know achieved something that that they've always wanted to achieve, haven't they? You're absolutely right. Look, you could you you couldn't watch that game. And then feel bad at the end of it, even if you're a Kiwi. I'm a, I'm a you know, diehard All Blacks supporter, always have been, and it was quite painful to lose our first one against Ireland a couple of years ago. Um, and, and I guess there's a little bit of a – it would have been nice to have a, a, a big uh, donut on the win-loss ratio with another country. But, no, we've got to realise that, you know, all the other teams are lifting around the world and, and um, you know, we've got to keep on top of our game. But, that you know, it, it's actually damn good for the game. Damn good mm. game that, yeah. that Argentina. Hopefully now that wasn't a one-off and that they can do the same to the Aussies this week. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean it would be great if you had all, all the teams. It's still possible on this Tri Nations to all be on the same points at the end of end of the tournament. And uh, it'll be goal difference or something. But uh, yeah, look, uh, I, I hope they do keep it up. It'd be great for the game globally if they continue to you know play at that level. Um, yeah, just just love it. I, I'd I'd far rather that than I remember going to a an All Blacks Australia game in the early 2000s and the atmosphere at Eden Park was just dead because everyone knew we were going to win and we did by 30-odd points. It was um, quite quite boring, um, if you can ever say that of an All, Black game, All Blacks game. But but I certainly uh, 
yeah, it was, it was great. Great to see the, the, the Pumas do that. And, and um, again, hope they can do it to the Aussies too. Okay, and, and, and you know, I'd like to see us as a nation actually apply that, you know, that ambition for our rugby team, you know, get, twisting this rack around to our health sector. You know, mm. and, uh, we, you know, we are the best in the world at playing rugby at the moment. I think our rating's gone down to number three, but mm. let's forget about that. Um, and with sailors in the world, you know, we've, we're the best in many things uh, for a little country, and and we glad we hold that up in our sporting prowess. You know, so wouldn't it be fantastic? At the moment, we're the we're the best in the world in the wrong way because we have the mm. highest youth suicide mm. rate. And and go, you know, again, we've got to be ambitious and say let's be best for the opposite reason. You know, that, that wouldn't that be fantastic? And and we're perfectly set up as a country to. You know, assuming people can be ambitious and, and policy makers and, and decision makers can be ambitious and try new things, we're perfectly set up as a com- country with our population and our diversity of our population to actually run some experiments with some new innovative technologies that are coming up, and uh, and then you know when they're proven successful, um, export them to the world. Uh, certainly, Lofties and we're in Australia and New Zealand. We're getting interest out of other countries already. Um, it's, it's a digital solution. It's global. Um, and we're looking mm. at it not only into Tadeo, but into um, you know Mandarin, Cantonese, a whole range of other languages. It's just uh, it's a no-brainer that this is a you know people wherever you're from in the world get get anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, ADHD, you know the whole the works. So we've got to be able to offer that globally, and and why not be the the leader in that space? Absolutely agree. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, well, thanks for that, uh, Marshall. And hey, thanks, listeners, for uh, you know sticking with us. It's been a long um, episode, this, but uh, it's been fantastic. And what a lot of information we've talked about, and a few other things. I, I, I again for international listeners, there were two um, native animals that we mentioned at the start there was i talked about the tui um which you know i can see out my window that you might some of you might have actually heard them singing um at one point so that's a native bird as black with a sort of a white tuff that used to be called a parson bird well you know from the, the the early new zealand settlers from england called because it looked like a, a parson you know a, a minister um uh, with their white collar uh but the tuis t-u-i and then you mentioned the tūratara mm-hmm. um which is not not the only the name of the baseball team. It's a, it's a, now now you'll have to correct me. Is it would we regarded as a lizard or it's a reptile? The only, it's the only living dinosaur. Yes. So as a yes. classification of animals, it is the only still alive dinosaur that was around twenty, thirty, whatever millions of years ago. Yeah, mm. special. They live now, twenty years of age and they don't move much, so they're a bit dull to watch. <laughs> Komodo <laughs> dragon. But yeah, the reptile. Um, but yeah, very much the only living dinosaur. Yeah, and they're not big. And and um, the the how do you spell it? Tua T U A A T A R A T A R A. Because yeah, because I know my international listeners are they're just um, mad keen on on knowledge. So I'm, I'm sure they've jumped on onto their search engine now, um, looking up Tui and and Tua Tara or, you know, a tūratara, as we would put it. Mm. So, uh, hey, thanks, Marshall. Thanks, listeners. As usual, um, subscribe and uh, share the, the episode and the, uh, the podcast around. As I always say, share the love around. There's, we're talking about some pretty important stuff here today and other episodes. So make sure as many people as possible um, can also share in it. So thanks, Marshall. Really been great to spend time with you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been fantastic. Loved it. Cheers. Okay, great. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to the Digital Health Insights Podcast with Scott Errol. Make sure to subscribe and join us again for more news, views and stories from key health and tech leaders. For more information, please head to our website at www.nzhit.nz where you'll find links to resources, news, events and much more.